code blue. I went down flatlined and my heart stopped and I died. Uh, I came to spiritually in a horizontal position, which was like my body was in a bed, but I couldn't see anything. I was in a gray room. <clears throat> the room was very soft gray, the walls, the ceiling, the floor, and I couldn't really see how big it was, but I could clearly see I was in a room and I was horizontal. And over my left shoulder, I could see a doorway. And I didn't have a door in it, but it was a doorway, a regular doorway. And I could see on the other side that of the doorway, it was white. The light wasn't streaming through. It was just white on that side and gray on my side. And I wanted to, I had a desire to be at the door. So then I was at the doorway instantly. And I was leaning on the door jam on my right shoulder. And right across on the white side, there was someone leaning on the door jam on that side. So close enough for me to touch. And <clears throat> he looked at me and he said, do you want to come home? And in a flash, you knew, I knew where I was, who I was talking to, what the door was, and what the question was. Welcome to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where paradigms shift. Impossible becomes I'm possible, and weirdos are exposed for who they really are, pure geniuses. With your host, who walked from Chicago to L.A. just because he could, the one and only Mr. Weirdo, a.k.a. Rashid Huda. Good morning, Kellen. How are you, sir? I'm just outrageous today. I'm feeling great. Grateful to be here with you. Fantastic. You have lived an amazing, interesting life, a life that most people can't even imagine for the most part. You have been at the pinnacle of what we call success in the Western society. Uh, you've made kind of crazy money that most people can't even imagine making. And uh, you have fought your demons all along while you were doing that. And eventually you, you took control of your life and changed things around and got out of <laughs> decades long depression and uh, all kinds of negative habits that you had picked up along the way to become happy, which is my definition of success, which is uh, some of my guests have defined success as being happy. So my first question to you would be, how did it all start? Did you have a great childhood? Did you have a mentor that led you that way? How did it all start? Well, <clears throat> my mom got married really young and uh, she really, you know, like, like any teenager, didn't really have a clue about how to raise kids. She had an older sister that she had cared for who had, uh, I think, uh, cerebral palsy. And so she was, she could walk and stuff, but she had required some care. And uh, her mother was a school teacher. So my mom took over some of the household chores and so forth, but she really didn't know anything about raising kids. And so she had a, <clears throat> a very strict view of how the world works. It was tied to a particular religion, but the religion doesn't matter. She just had a very strict view. Everything needs to be a certain way. And she was violent in her enforcement of that. And so in, in her effort to make my older sister, particularly in me, the oldest two of six kids, behave, be, do the things we were supposed to do. She employed physical punishment in the extreme. So I had the crap beat out of me all the time. It's the short way of saying that. And the, today, that discipline would be felony child abuse. I remember thinking during the time, I wish she would kill me because then she would get in trouble. In those days, the idea of going to an authority figure or trying to get help simply didn't exist. And I was terrified all the time. And I remember thinking that regularly, I wish I'd die so she'd get in trouble. Uh, it continued all through growing up <clears throat> in high school. I remember in the locker room getting dressed last because I didn't want anyone to see that I was black and blue because I was ashamed of it because that meant something was wrong with me. So <clears throat> eventually she grew up the younger three of the six kids there were three older ones and three younger ones with a little bit of a space in between. They didn't, they didn't experience that. And so when I wrote about my own journey in my, one of my first books, tightrope of depression, I just described not in an angry way, cause I feel no anger, hold no negativity now, 
what happened that one of the younger three read it and she got, got after me pretty hard and said, you know, this didn't happen. Why are you saying all this? Because they didn't experience that. So somewhere in there, my mom grew up and she changed who she was. But what my experience did for me, like there were two parents home. My dad worked a lot, so he was gone. He did some of the beatings, but my mom was really the the instigator and the administrator of all that sort of stuff. And it was pretty severe. I remember regularly when I would go in my room and hide and think, why do I get spanked every single day? Like every day I'm, I'm that bad. You know, I remember feeling those things and saying those things to myself. And, and it wasn't just spanking, you know, slapping, screaming, swearing, uh, you know, the worst kind of shaming you can imagine. I, when I was six or seven, for some reason, I peed on the bathroom floor and uh, I don't know why I did it on purpose and then felt bad about it. So I got toilet paper and tried to clean it all up and I didn't do a perfect job. And so my mom found out and she asked me and I lied. And then I confessed and as punishment, you know, she tied a ribbon around my penis and put me on the front porch in public, you know, to embarrass me and shame me. And, you know, that kind of stuff today, we understand how impactful that sort of stuff is. So that was the context. And it left me feeling I'm not good enough. I never will be. I suck. My mom must be right. She has told me I suck. I, I need to do all this stuff to be holy and good. So I have to get her approval. So it left me with everything in the family's private. You never can talk to anyone. You're not good enough. If you just sucked it up and did better, you'd be okay. And I need to get my mother's approval. So that collection of things meant that for the next, I left home at 17. So for the next 35 years until I was 52, I lived on a roller coaster of trying to get approval from my mom, hating myself because I wasn't good enough, sabotaging great success, which I had, as you mentioned, I had career success, made a lot of money in high positions and all this stuff. But behind the scenes, I needed to sabotage it. So I sabotaged three relationships. I was married and divorced three times. I had picked up habits of addiction, which not surprising with the depression and everything. I believed with all my heart that I wasn't good enough. I had only received conditional love, so I didn't know how to love. And I didn't even know all this about myself until you know now, later, as I sort of take this all apart. At the time, it was like a fish in water is not aware of the water. I was just being, doing the one thing I knew how to do, which is make money. And then I would trash the relationship I was in. And that went on and off, 30, 35 years of roller coaster, up and down, up and down, up and down including some stints in rehab and hiding this and spending ridiculous amounts of money on substances and uh, all kinds of garbage, just a, a colossal waste of money and time and talent and attention and love and ability that we all have. I was just squandering it on trying to prove myself. And sometimes things would get better with my mom and sometimes not. And then she disapproved of this person and didn't want me to get married to that person. And it's crazy now to think that even as an adult, that relationship with her exercised so much power over me. But I believed somehow that she was right and I sucked. And so somehow it was connected to God and being OK and eternity and everything else. And you'd think that that kind of thing might drive somebody away from spirituality. It didn't. I knew there was God and I knew there was something larger than all of us, but I also knew that my mom was doing it wrong and the whole thing was just crazy, but I didn't know how to not do that. And I ended up not feeling anything. I, ended, I did not know how to love. I'm sure I was an awful partner in the relationships I was in. <clears throat> I attracted broken people. One woman was raised by an alcoholic stepfather and her mother told her she was unwanted. Uh, but I, I, of course I didn't understand what that did to anybody. I just knew those things. And now in retrospect, I'm like, wow, another lady, her mom committed suicide when she was 12 and she was lied to about it till she was 21 and then found out that her dad drove her to, you know, just all kinds of crazy stuff. And so she had, you know, gigantic abandonment and other issues that manifested in our relationship. But I didn't understand any of this stuff until 
post 52 when something started to change for me. So that's how 35 years went. And the fact that I had big positions and made a lot of money in a car full, I mean, a garage full of this, that, and the other, like the problems that I had were the exactly the same problems when I made a little bit of money and when I made a lot. The number of zeros behind it were more so I could buy more drugs and buy stupider cars and bigger houses, but the emptiness in my heart and the hate of myself and the failure in relationships were just as bad. When they failed, it just employed more lawyers, but it didn't do anything good. And what, so what, the, you're say, what you're saying is money amplifies who you are. Yeah. Let's do that. Money amplifies who you are. I, I was doing very badly. So then I was just doing very badly, very loudly. But what happened at 52? Well, I had a divine intervention. I had trashed my life to the extent that I guess God found it important to at least offer me an invitation to change. I was at that age, I was at the height of my power, money-making ability, and addiction. I was using so much money on drugs that it would be as much money as some people make for their whole livelihood uh, a week. I think it was 3000 bucks a week I was wasting on, on cocaine. And it didn't matter because I was making so much money that didn't count. And that's embarrassing to say now, but it was true. <clears throat> anyway, in August of 2007, at the height of all this, I came home on a Friday night and... Um, <clears throat> was getting ready to go out party for the weekend. I had four of my, I have 10 children from those marriages. Four of the teenagers were living with me as a single dad. I was single again for the third time. And I wasn't taking very good care of them. They had a place to live and all the money we needed to do whatever, but I was going to go party for the weekend and I might've showed back up on Monday or maybe Tuesday. Um, before I got ready to go out, I had this urge to turn on the television. That doesn't sound like anything interesting, except I didn't know how. I'd had, you know, some electronic store come and put in the latest, greatest stuff because that's what you buy when you have all that kind of money. But I didn't really watch TV. I wasn't drawn to it and I didn't enjoy it. So when I went to turn it on, I realized I didn't know how to turn on the TV. So I had to ask, ask one of my kids, ask my 16 year old daughter, how, how do you turn this on? And she took the remote and did whatever, and then threw it at me and stomped out of the room, you know, dummy kind of thing. So anyway, I sat down and I hadn't really picked the channel or anything. I just sat down at the first thing that had come on and it was a reality TV show, which I'd never heard of, but I'd never heard of anything because I didn't watch television and it was called Intervention which is a, if you don't know, is a reality TV show where a family or family and friends get a shrink or a counselor or to, together and they call in one family member who's having trouble and they know they're having trouble and they won't face it and they're trying to help. So they're trying to create an intervention, which is the name of the program. And I didn't know anything about it, but I watched a few minutes and the guy that was in trouble, the protagonist was a high ranking executive with a cocaine problem. So I watched a few minutes of it and I thought, okay, this sucks. That's me. I'm not watching this. <clears throat> so I turned it off and went around the house for a few more minutes. And before I left, I just felt compelled to turn the TV on again. So I did. <clears throat> and this time I knew how. Uh, and that program, very same program, started over at the very beginning not and i don't have a recording device don't have a dvr or a recording thingy and it wasn't on the schedule and no i realize it can't do that but it did and that scared me <clears throat> and i thought okay i guess i'm supposed to watch this so i did <clears throat> and it went badly the person who was trying to be helped got angry at his family and yelled at him and stomped out and refused all help and you know turned out badly and uh it, it scared me bad enough that I didn't go out that night. I went to bed and I went to hell when I went to bed. And what I mean by that is I had an experience that I don't know how to describe. It felt like an out of body experience. I was watching a parade of events in my life, starting from young to now to that time at 52 and the focus of the parade of events, the drama was all the suffering 
the suffering that had been inflicted on me and the suffering that I had inflicted on others, just all of the pain and the remorse and the sadness and that I felt spiritually, I can't describe. It was overwhelming just to be a witness to this. And it wasn't fast. It wasn't like a flash. It was very slow watching all these scenes. And <clears throat> at the end of some period of time, I heard a voice, not a loud or angry voice. The voice said, it is enough. And I woke up and the sun was shining in the window. And I thought, how can the sun be shining in the window? My window faces west. Like, what's going on? And it turns out that it was Saturday afternoon at five o'clock. So it had been nearly 18 hours that I had been somewhere with this experience. And I, I sat up and I realized that I'd been invited to change in <clears throat> the most obvious and most powerful way I can imagine. And it wasn't like I hadn't been invited before and I knew there were troubles. I had, you know, made some attempts to get clean during these years and had, you know, day streaks of days of not using and because <clears throat> I didn't think it was good for me or anybody else. I knew when I was new, it was wasting a lot of money. And <clears throat> but anyway, this was a, an extremely powerful invitation. So I got up and I threw everything away that I had, which is probably a thousand dollars worth of stuff, flushed it down the toilet and said, I'm not, I'm done. And so I quit that day and I didn't ever go back. I quit cold Turkey one day, 3000 bucks a week to zero in one day. But I knew that was just the start because I knew that the job or the contracts that I had, the business I was in, the positions I had, I knew that my whole life had to change. I knew I can't, I can't just do that. <clears throat> Everything's got to change. And I don't know how or what's going to happen. I don't know. I'm starting with this. So the second part of the divine intervention uh, happened two weeks later. That first part got me sober, but it didn't do anything at all to deal with what had got me there in the first place, which was the conviction that I was nobody and that I hated myself and that if anybody really knew the real Kellen and not the outside appearances, they'd all hate me. And I would, it would be demonstrated that I sucked as bad as I thought I did. So anyway, two weeks later, I, I had received a pair of tickets to go see a concert. Now it was, in the position that I had, it was not unusual for me to get gifts of all kinds from other companies. And some of them were quite expensive, several hundred dollars, but not to the level of bribes, but just, because I made important decisions, people were nice to you and gave me all kinds of stuff. And I had two tickets to see Yo-Yo Ma, who's a classical cellist. If you know classical music, you know who that is. And if you don't, that's fine. But in classical music, he's like, oh, you know, <clears throat> way up there. So I, I thought, well, I'm single. I don't want to waste this other ticket. So I asked in the groups, I managed, um, who likes classical music? And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I said, uh, I looked at her and I said, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, no. I said, okay, fine. Here's a ticket. See you there. So I gave her the ticket. <clears throat> we met at the concert. This is now, I'm two weeks stone cold sober. And the concert was spectacular. Halfway through or so, <clears throat> this feeling came over me. That I recognized as being like what had happened two weeks before. I recognized something was happening. And a voice said in my head, you need to marry this woman. And I laughed and sort of, and I said, you're crazy. I said, I've screwed that up three times officially with some other failures in between. And, that, you know, that's not happening. And later that night, we were backstage because they were backstage passes and meeting everybody. And the, the feeling came back and said, <clears throat> comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And I started thinking about, okay, she can have me arrested. She can, you know, harassment. She can do all kinds of stuff. I mean, I don't hardly know this lady. I know who she is and she works for me, but I, crap, I don't know. So I argued about it and you don't win those arguments. So I did. And it went about like you would have expected. Are you crazy? What are you talking about? 
And so she left. And within just two weeks, she had her own set of experiences. She had a really good job. She was a project manager and she'd been in that department for nine years and had was doing really well for herself. But anyway, in two weeks, she quit her jobs. She, we had talked a few times and she, um, Resigned, I resigned, and we walked off into the sunset, not having a single clue what we were going to do. We left the industry, we left the, everything uh, into nothing to start all over again. And we, two weeks ago, a little over two weeks ago, we celebrated our 14th anniversary. Well, congratulations. And her name is Joy. Like, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so... Here's the th important part about that. The important part is <clears throat> my way of learning to get to know people was a disaster. My way of creating relationships was a disaster. I didn't know how to love. I didn't know how to tell the truth. I was a pathological liar from my childhood to protect myself. I'd learned to lie about everything so I could keep myself safe. I didn't know how to be a person. I was a great actor. That's how I get had the positions and got the stuff done that I got done. I knew how to do anything that needed to be done. Put on the three-piece Armani, go to battle, I'm in. And I'm all in and I'm invincible. But it, when the lights went out and I was alone, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what to feel. I didn't know anything. So <clears throat> I didn't know how to create any kind of a relationship. So the divine introduced me and said this one. And then did the same to her. And I've asked her a bunch of times since then, what on earth made you walk away from your promising career and into the sunset with a drug addict? Like, what were you thinking? And she said, you know, I don't know. I just knew to the core of my soul it was the right thing to do. So my point in that isn't, I'm not special. In fact, I view myself as maybe thicker than most. The point there is that you, each of you, whoever's listening to this right now, are that important. It took me 35 years of refusal, 35 years of depression, addictions, failed relationships, miserable, hating life. And finally, our creator said, hey, enough. It is enough. It is time. Yeah, and it, and it didn't change anything <clears throat> the reason she was the second half is because she everybody in the office knew i was an addict everybody knew i was using but nobody knew they but they all had rumors and stuff she went to work to find me people to talk to to find me counselors to make it okay she taught me how to have a friend she taught me how to be a friend she taught me how to love uh, you know and so that was the piece that addressed the core of the see my real addiction wasn't to any substance my real addiction was to self-loathing i needed to hate myself and the substances were whatever was handy cocaine got to be the favorite but it they were whatever else so so the addiction was the the belief that i wasn't worth anything really and whatever show i put on i might get paid for paid a lot for but I wasn't worth anything. And she was at the core of fixing that. One more little piece. In her search for different shrinks, and we went through a bunch, she found one guy who was 74. He's 10 years older than I was. He's 74 now. 72. I don't know. Anyway, 10 years older than I was. Long hair, uh, ponytail, ex-biker, ex-drug addict. Oh, by the way, PhD forensic psychologist. Okay, we can talk. And so that, that guy made a huge difference too. And he did some weird things. You know, he had me on the floor doing shamanic breath work and as well as regular talk therapy and all kinds of crazy stuff, but he was good and helped me see what I had helped me see and understand that panorama of suffering that I had experienced and had inflicted and helped bring me to a place where I could learn to forgive others and forgive myself, not to pretend all those awful things didn't happen on either side, but to realize that if I don't forgive myself and others, I am forever burdened down and unable to serve and lift and bless the lives of others. 
because I'm too weighted down with old pain. This was a spiritual experience that changed your life. It was intuition. Uh, you listened to your intuition. Was this something that you were familiar with or it just came out of nowhere and you say, I better listen. A mix of both. I'd been raised, as I said, you know, prayers and religion. And so I wasn't unfamiliar with prayer. I, I, and I didn't disallow God. Like I didn't say there's no God or any of that kind of stuff. But what I did say is, yeah, it must be out there somewhere, but I, I can't do it. I, I'm not, I don't have the ability to do this. So I had been in and out of church and religions all that 35 years kind of trying to do better. And it was all in the context of proving something to my, to my mom. And, you know, I'd been married and had kids and was raising kids and was trying to do that. And then I would have a secret life behind that. You know, this, this whole duality of I'm trying to do the thing I think I'm supposed to do. The truth is I'm not good enough and I have to make sure that's true by doing things that injure me or injure others, because then I have proved the thing I already know to be true, which is I suck. And so that conflict, two layers of life was going on all the time. And your question about intuition, I'd been meditating. I'd been a meditator on and off all my life. I started when I was in my teens because of martial arts. And martial arts and meditation to me went hand in hand. And so I'd started dabbling in it both and eventually ended up writing my five books on meditation. And I ended up also having a couple of second degree black belts in different styles. So I, I pursued it both. And so I understood silence and stillness to a degree then, nothing like now, but then. So to answer your question is, I understood intuition. I, I had the, the belief that I didn't deserve these things, that it was reserved for cool people that did good or something, some warped thing. But I understood it. I had felt it occasionally, and I, I knew about it. That all makes sense. I read in your bio that you had a near-death experience. Was that before or after? The near-death experience is only three and a half years ago. It'll be four years this June. So it was 10 years. It was almost on the 10-year anniversary, <clears throat> excuse me, of that first experience. And it had nothing to do with anything. I got sick. I contracted an illness and... Uh, my Joy and I, in 2018, went on a cruise, and neither one of us had ever been on a cruise before. It just wasn't something we'd ever done. So we went over to the Baltic Sea, which is over where St. Petersburg, Russia, and the south end of Finland and Norway. I didn't know where it was. I, I knew it was over there somewhere, but I didn't really know where it was. So then I looked it up. Now I know where it is. But anyway, we went on a cruise on the Baltic Sea, and during that time, I got sick <clears throat> at the end. Uh, I had a bad fever and we, the cruise ended and we flew home from Amsterdam. And that was the second, first day was Oslo. I was sick and second day was really bad. And I flew home with a terrible fever today. They would, you know, one, they wouldn't let you on the plane or two. If they did, they'd throw you out the window. But in those days, they just brought you ice packs and you were not feeling well. So they took care of you. Um, <clears throat> on Tuesday, we got home. Uh, and Wednesday and Thursday, I just stayed in bed. I thought I canceled clients and things that I had in my coaching business. And I thought, well, it'll get bad, better. It's a bad flu or something. By Friday, which was the fifth day, and I'll tell you why that matters in a minute, I realized it wasn't going to get better. So we live in Canada, in Edmonton, Alberta, and we went to a walk-in clinic, which is what they have here. It was one near my house that I always go to. So it was my primary care doctor sort of. And they wouldn't let me in. Uh, the nurse there at the door said, uh, you, you can't come in here. We can't help you. And you need to go to the ER right now. So I did, but it was a shock. Like you can't come in here. We can't help you get out of here. Go, go, go. So I must've looked terrifying. I got to the ER a Friday afternoon and, um, you know, in an ER, you, Normally, 
it might take an hour or two or three, depending on how busy they are. Or, you, know, you might sit there for a long time. <clears throat> in 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I didn't even know they had private rooms in the emergency areas and hospitals. The only thing I'd ever seen are those little curtain, those little curtained off things. I was in a door room with doors and walls and it was shut. And I thought like, wow, what happened? And that was in 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, the doctor was in there. They were all over me. And so the tests and x-rays and this and that, and they came back and said, well, at a minimum, you have pneumonia in both lungs, terrifying, horrible, awful, monstrous pneumonia, but there's something else going on. We don't know what it is and it ain't good. So I came back after a while. Yeah, we're going to take you up to the fifth floor. So they put me in the, in, in, they admitted me to the hospital and they came back later and said, well, uh, there's something wrong. We, we're probably going to have to move you to intensive care. Okay. And they came back. Yeah, we're probably going to put you in biological isolation, which if you don't know is double door airlock kind of stuff. Like you're alone in a room with double door airlocks. People have to mask and gown kind of like a biohazard thing. So they were, were going to do that too. And then they came back. With, and then after that, I started freaking out and I, I'd already sent joy home because it was night now and <clears throat> we have cats and dogs and she needs to go home, take care of them and that sort of stuff. And I said, you know, I'm in the hospital, so just come back in the morning and we'll see what's going on. So she went home, took care of the cats and dogs and went to bed. And then they came in and said, uh, the thing you never want to hear, the doctor asked me, looked right at me and he said, do we have permission to intubate you and do anything else we need to do to preserve your life? And I thought, holy crap. Uh, okay. Kind of like that is how I answered the question. Then I started to meditate. <clears throat> I thought I need to see if I can figure out what's going on here. And I went into meditation and after a while, I could feel my body and my spirit separating. I can't describe what that feels like, but there was a, a clear sense of unzipping going on. I could feel a separation, so I knew I was dying. And I sent Joy a text. By then, I was trembling so badly I could hardly use the phone, but I sent her a text, and it had three lines. And the first line said, I see you. The second line said isolation slash intubation. And the third line said, I may be dying. She didn't see it. because She was asleep. But about 2.30 or 3 in the morning, she got a call from the hospital. Also the one you never want to get. And the nurse said, uh, are you coming? And she said, what? And then she saw my text. So sometime in that place, I crashed. Uh, you know, crash cart code green, blue, red, black, whatever it is in whatever hospital, code blue, I went down flatlined and my heart stopped and I died. Uh, I came to spiritually in a horizontal position, which was like my body was in a bed, but I couldn't see anything. I was in a gray room <clears throat> and the room was very soft gray, the walls, the ceiling, the floor, and I couldn't really see how big it was but I could clearly see I was in a room and I was horizontal and over my left shoulder. I could see a doorway and I didn't have a door in it, but it was a doorway, a regular doorway. And I could see on the other side that of the doorway, it was white. The light wasn't streaming through. It was just white on that side and gray on my side. And I wanted to, I had a desire to be at the door. So then I was at the doorway instantly and I was leaning on the door jam on my right shoulder. And right across on the white side, there was someone leaning on the door jam on that side. So close enough for me to touch. And <clears throat> he looked at me and he said, do you want to come home? And in a flash, you knew, I knew where I was, who I was talking to, what the door was and what the question was. And so I freaked out a little, but not much. We talked about everything. I talked about what I had been doing in the 10 years since that divine intervention whose author was standing before me. And we, we talked about what I'd done and what my, my purpose was and what I was trying to do and all the things that I felt like I still wanted to do. And after a while, I said, yeah, I just, I'm just not done. He said, okay. And I'm quite certain that at that point is when they were able to restart my heart. 
I don't have a record of how long I was dead. So I don't know that. I don't really care. It doesn't matter. The next day, and I don't know how it was the next day, but the next day I was back at the door spiritually and we were having a, another second conversation. And I said, uh, this one was really exciting. And the subject of the previous day didn't come up like that was decided you're staying. So this one was okay. Well, let's talk about what you're going to do. All right. So I, we were talking about my coaching business and who I was trying to help and joy and my kids. I told you I had 10 kids and some of them because of the divorces and the drugs and things don't talk to me yet. And I have complete confidence that I have time and love on my side and that will change. But right now they don't. And so we talked about that. Some of them don't. And so, you know, we just talked about all those things. And then I had a, an experience where I felt like I was being fed information, like with a fire hose. And the closest thing I can describe to it is there's a movie with Jodie Foster in it called Contact. It talks about alien visits. And if you've ever seen that movie, they build this weird device and she gets in it and they drop it. And there's some 12 seconds missing from the video. And during that time, she's completely overwhelmed in this astronomical. Okay, well, I felt like that. If, if, if I hadn't been in some kind of a protective bubble, I would have been incinerated. But I was somehow able to drink the fire hose. And it was... An experience that it, we don't have the words to describe, but I have four things that came away from it that mattered a lot and that are part of what I help people learn for themselves in my work. And that's these four things. Number one, every single one of us, no matter where we are, no matter what our circumstances are, rich, poor, old, young, sick, healthy, every single one of us <clears throat> is a divine intentional creation created by a loving God, and we are here for a reason. The second thing I knew for sure at the end of that whole thing is that we all have gifts that we were given as we came. Every single person has gifts and talents, no exception. And the third thing is that we have a mission and purpose that we not only agreed to do, but that we were stoked about, excited as that spans across our life and not necessarily one thing, but there is purpose to all of it. And we have the talents to do it. And the fourth thing, and yeah, I get emotional when I talk about this because this is so spiritual. It's so profound. And it is the core of why I breathe today. The fourth thing is that all the help we need is available from both sides of that door. And so I digested that for a while. And I asked, I said, well, since that's true, Why do we settle for crumbs? And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, but the answer was four words. Because you don't believe. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, I thought, oh, of course, of course. So then, and then I ask, well, what am I going to do? What can I do to help? What can I do about that? Oh, glad you asked. So what followed in this, the second conversation was really long. What followed was a long conversation about something called context. And our context, each of us have one, and it's the collection of beliefs, definitions, experiences, expectations, and perceptions that we have. And it forms the boundary of what we think is possible, what we can do, what we dare try, what we think we have. I gave that an acronym. I call it our B-deep beliefs, definitions, experiences, expectations, and perceptions. Our B-deep forms a context straitjacket. And I use the image of a straitjacket because it keeps us locked up. Uh, in, in limited as to what we believe we can do. So anyway, the thing that came in that part of the conversation was a, in a framework about how to address and change beliefs that we have that are part of that context straitjacket to change that, to allow us to change beliefs, even deeply held ones like mine from childhood abuse and 
long addiction, even those kind that are woven into the fabric of our DNA. So I wrote that in a second book. I wrote a book called Meeting God at the Door, Conversations, Choices, and Commitments of a Near-Death Experience. And I described the illness and the whole thing. And then I described three conversations. We haven't done the third one yet. But I just talk a little bit about the second conversation because the guts of it, I wrote in a second, I wrote in a second book called The Book of Context, because this is that form framework about how to change beliefs. Anyway, it was funny, that funny story about Book of Context. After I wrote it, I have a client who's a retired physician, a famous guy, lives in Baltimore. And I asked him to write the forward. And so he read it and he loved it. He said, Yeah, I'd be happy to. So he wrote the forward. And then he spent a half hour trying to get me to change the name. He said, uh, you know, if you'd written the book of joy or the book of love, we'd know what that is. But the book of context. And I waited patiently till he was done trying to talk me out of my name. And when he got done, uh, I looked at him and I said, Mort, the name is not negotiable. (laughs) 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 It's just not negotiable. And you got it. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. All right. So anyway, that ended. And then the next day. I was back at the door and this time I was buzzing spiritual. I was dancing. I was on fire. I was excited. I was repeating the context principles and all this stuff over and over again. And I was singing a song. I, you know, I was just on fire and we're back at the same door, same place, same thing, same door jam. And the third conversation was one question. He looked right at me and he said, are you sure? And I felt like, I sort of hyperventilate. I felt like I've been hit with a ton of bricks. Like, what do you mean? Am I sure? Am I stupid? Am I missing something here? Have I, have I bitten off more than I can chew? Like what? You know, I thought, oh no, am I sure? So we talked about it from every possible way. You know, am I biting up more than I can chew? Is there help for this? Can I get this done? Is it possible? All this stuff. And finally, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So nothing was said, but that third conversation ended with a finality that I knew we were done. And that was the conclusion. Two weeks later, I came out of the coma. I was in a coma for another two weeks because that was the first three of 17 days that I was in a coma. And when I got out, I'd lost 35 pounds. I was completely physically atrophied. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. I looked like a survivor from a concentration camp uh, and all that stuff. And then there's a whole story about what happened after that. But that was the near-death experience. And I, death in terms of I went there and had those conversations. The result of that is that I only do one thing. My commitment from the first breath I take in the morning to the last one at night before I go to sleep is to help 10 million people discover, develop, and serve each other with their divine gifts. And that's it. There is a noble calling. It's, it's my commitment. So it's just, that's what I do. Whether I'm, I'm writing books, I do podcasts, I have my own podcast, I write music, I coach, I have, you know, I help other people write books and some of my classes and all kinds of stuff, but it's all focused around that one thing. You know, some people need help building businesses. Some people need help writing books. Some people need help like I did figuring out who they are and loving themselves and with forgiveness. And, you know, those are the things that we work on. And that's all I do. You said music. Yes. What do you know about music? I started playing when I was four, five. I learned to read music at the same time I learned to read. So, for example, I don't remember not being able to read music. I have been a uh, professional performing pianist, classically trained jazz pianist, uh, been also a vocalist, been in a large choir that released several albums, three of which charted number one on Billboard in classical music. I have a recording studio and have for, that was one of the big points of contention between my mother and I, when I was away from home, I wanted to do music. I started recording and I started writing music and it was electronic music. Then synthesizers had just come out and I got really involved in that. And she didn't want me to be a musician and didn't want me to have a studio and didn't want me to do any of that crap because musicians, they're bad people. They're unfaithful and they're all in drugs and everything else. And I became her worst nightmare. You know, that was something that was a, another big point of conflict. And 
one of the beautiful things that has happened since then is I wrote Tightrope of Depression, thinking that was going to be the only book I wrote about my journey. And then as soon as I got done, I realized I was just getting started. So I wrote volume two called Down from the Gallows. In volume one and two, I wrote uh, an album of music songs, um, 11 songs for each of those two books, telling stories from the books because I wanted them to be a little bit different. And the third and concluding volume of the trilogy will be out probably a year from now, January 2023. And that also has a third album, which I'm halfway through. So that's what I mean. But you had a passion for music from very childhood. That's one of the gifts that I have that I know I need and do now use to lift and bless you bet your life i love it i live it and when i did have the studio my favorite thing to do was to have a singer songwriter come in because i had synths and drum machines and i was really good on keys i could finish their whole album for them i could do bass strings all the stuff and they would do whatever they do and i'd pr I produce lots of albums that way for people <clears throat> how did you get back into it or were you always involved in music uh no, during the time of heavy addictions from probably 1995 to 2007. So that 12 years, I wasn't doing anything. Uh, very little in music in 2007 when the divine intervention took place and joy came into my life. Um, I talked to her about it. And so we started putting together a studio it looked quite different than the one I'd had before. Cause in the old days you had two inch tape decks and big gear and eight foot mixing board and all that stuff today, it's all in the box. And so I have one or two racks of gear instead of 10 and uh, you know, a couple of keyboards instead of 20 and uh, you know, all the rest is in the box. And I had, you know, a few really good mics and my son's a carpenter and he pointing over there, he came and built a vocal booth. It's beautiful. Sounds wonderful. So I have the studio. I don't record other people anymore. It's all my stuff. So that's how. In 2007, I gradually started building it again. And since 2007, I've done several albums of some of it's EDM, electronic dance music. I've done some new age stuff. I've done some meditation music. And then I've done those two albums of songs that two and a half that go with the books, the tightrope series. So if somebody was struggling to get in touch with their inner weirdo and bring it out into the world and embrace it, what would you say to them? Well, there's several things. Love, love, learning to love yourself is <clears throat> something I didn't know how to do until my mid 50s. It, you know, it took me three or four years after the divine intervention to work through a lot of this stuff. You need to love yourself. I don't care what you think your weirdo is. It's fine. It's you. It's who you are. The question is, how can you have fun with it? How can you serve and add good to the world with it? So whatever it is, writing, singing, dancing, painting, standing on your head, making weird videos on YouTube, like what can you do with this thing that is you? Don't hide it. Be it. Learn to know it. Do you really know it? Do you know yourself? Can you love that? I don't care what anybody else thinks. I, I was tied to the ground buried with this worry. I call it witot, W-I-T-O-T. -T. It's a word and it stands for what I think others think. I lived in a coffin buried of, with witot, what I think others think. That it doesn't matter. They don't have the power to give you happiness, fulfillment, joy. Only you can love yourself, can embrace who you really are. And the only reason we have a podcast called Embrace Your Inner Weirdo is because we live in a framework where that thing is somehow weird. And the truth is, it isn't. 
You were given the gifts and talents and personality. You came from somewhere. Maybe you liked painting before. Maybe you liked whatever, you know, the talents and inclinations and yearnings that you have, you brought. They are here for you to do good with, to serve with, to make a difference with, to make people happy with, to make them laugh or to make them taken care of or serve some need. Like, that's why we have them. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, Wallace D. Wattles. He said, you can render to God and humanity no better service than to make the most of yourself. You know, that is the true, true, true thing. Somebody else said, be yourself. Everybody else has already taken, mm -hmm. you know, I love it. You, I love what you said. You can't hear. I want you people, you listeners, you beautiful, hungry, aching people to listen. And I am too. You and me, we can be no greater service to our creator and to humanity than to be the very best version of ourselves that's true. How do you go about doing that? Number one, love. You have to learn even a little at a time. Like learning to love yourself and accept yourself is not a switch. It's not a switch. You go turn on like the lights. Oh, the lights are on. Okay, I'm fine now. Like, I don't know anybody in the universe that did that, including me. And I had the things that happened to me that I've described. It's a process because those staggering two by fours that I got in 2007 and that unbelievably tender experience in 2018, they're all just invitations. Like they happen in a moment and then they're done. And you and me, we have to decide what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to write a book about that experience. I'm going to write one, two, three books and write a whole bunch of music. Well, that's a lot of work. Writing a book and another book and talking about it and telling people and looking inside myself and saying, I, I, I'm not going to hate myself anymore. I don't know how to do that. Hmm. How would I start there? Maybe I can talk to somebody. I learned to be vulnerable for the first three years after I had 2007, when I finally started seeing counselors, I was a, I was a disaster as a patient. I was a disaster. I'd lied. I didn't tell, I would tell them things and then psychoanalyze myself and tell them every, I'd already fixed everything because I had this idea. I was supposed to have it all figured out. So then I, my, my version of being vulnerable was telling them stuff that had happened, but then I figured this out and I figured this out. And so, you know, I'm sure, you know, I, oh, crap, you know, that it took me a long time to just be Kellen and be vulnerable and say, this is me. I got this and I got that and I'm working on this. And I think I might have made some progress over here. I don't know. What do you think? And then be open to this conversation. To me, that meant weakness. That meant failure because I didn't have it done. I wasn't done and tuned up. So therefore I suck, which is the old chorus. So if you want to learn to love yourself, the first thing is make a declaration. I've had enough. I've had enough of the old way. I've had enough. I don't know what I'm going to do exactly. I don't know all the steps. I don't know all the path. I can't even see the goal clearly, but what I know for sure is I'm done with where I am. I'm done. It's over. I'm finished. Final period. That's number one. No going back. This is the burn the boats moment where the conquistadors came to conquer whatever and whether they should or shouldn't have, that's a whole different conversation. But the burn the boats moment was like, it's do or die, baby. We're done. The boats are gone. Okay. Step two is the old story about how to eat an elephant. Pick the tiniest thing you can do today that shows a little love and compassion to yourself and do that. If that's to chase away a shadow or a negative voice, if that's to get up a little earlier and spend 10 minutes in quiet meditation, there's a million free meditation apps. And when I started this journey, we didn't have all that stuff. 
So I wrote five books, a five-volume series on meditation to teach people how to do that. <clears throat> there's a million ways. There's a million free apps. There's a million YouTube videos. And I don't even think I might be exaggerating if I say a million apps. There's probably 200 apps. But there are a million YouTube videos. One comma zero, 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 comma zero, zero, zero. A million YouTube videos talking about meditation. So if you want to learn to be quiet and still with yourself, do it with joy and pleasure. Take the tiniest step toward being compassionate kind, loving to yourself. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've done things that someone else or you believe are bad. I've done a ton of those. I hurt a lot of people. In my marriages, I was a bad partner. I was unfaithful. I did all kinds of crazy. I didn't know how to listen. I didn't know how to be a person. I'd never learned it anywhere, and I hadn't taught myself yet. So number one is a firm decision. You're not doing this anymore. Number two is what's the smallest thing you can do today? to be compassionate and loving to yourself. Number three, get help. The biggest struggle of my life between 17 and 52 was buying into the notion that I needed to do this alone, buying into the notion that needing help was somehow weakness, and buying into the notion that somehow I was bad. So I was bad, I was weak, and I needed to do it alone. None of those are true, but believing those cost me 35 years. And all of the money I made and all of the parties I went to and all of the things I bought and all the vacations I did to mask the pain only lasted for a minute. And then they were gone and nothing changed. So get some help. That might be a shrink. It might be a coach. It might be some books. It might be some YouTube videos. It might be all of the above. But sitting there doing nothing will give you nothing. So that's the third thing. Get some help. Number four, set some small objectives, some small goals. Like if there are things about your life that you'd like to change, Here's what I know as a coach. I'm a hardcore success-oriented coach. I help clients do things that when they come, they don't believe they can do. And we work together for a while and they get them done. And here's how. It's not magic. Wherever you are, that's where you are. Whatever money you have, that's what you have. Whatever relationship you have or body or whatever it is. So there's a place there you are and there's a place you want to go. Okay, that's true for any goal. You are where you are and you want to go there. Now, there's nothing wrong with setting goals. What usually happens, we set goals and then we don't do anything about it. And so nothing changes. And we sit there and look at that goal and say, I can't do it. Somebody else, all that noise. Set smaller goals. Because here's the key. When we set a goal and we don't achieve it, we don't trust ourselves anymore. We become liars to ourselves. And then we adopt this silly rule that says, well, as long as I keep my commitments to other people, I'm okay but I never keep my commitment to myself. That's actually backwards. There's a cadence of success. And the cadence of success goes like this. I said it, I did it. 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 And so if you make goals and you don't do them, shrink the goals. Create the cadence of I said it, I did it for yourself. I said, I'm going to get up at this time. I said, I'm going to work out for 10 minutes. I said, I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes. I said it. I did it. I said it. I did it. When you get that cadence, you change into a person who trusts themselves, who knows they keep their word to themselves, which is the most important word that you have. Because if you keep your word to others and not to yourself, you live like I used to. You're a dual being. You liar, you're a liar underneath and you keep your word to yourself and you live with this thought that if anybody knew how, how bad I really was, how much I really don't do, how real much I really suck, that, that friction will kill you. It will trash mm -hmm. your goals. It will keep you from doing stuff. Mm -hmm. So you need, I said it, I did it. I said it, I did it. I said it, I did it. And if you pick things that are too big, no harm, no foul, shrink the goals. So there's four things you can do right now, today.
I'm never staying there again. I'm going to pick the tiniest thing I can to work on. I'm going to get whatever help I need from whatever source I need. I'm not going to make excuses. And I'm going to establish cadence of success. I said it. I did it. I said it. I did it. If somebody wanted to get help from you, uh, get to know you, send you some money, where would they find you? You know, one of the fun things about having a weird name like Kellen Flukiger <laughs> if you Google, as long as you spell my name right, that is the one requirement. If you spell my name right and put it in on Google, there's thousands of hits back from my executive days, the books that I've written, my LinkedIn profile, my YouTube channel. Spell my name right. If you go on any of the social media platforms, really easy to find. There's only one other Kellen Flukiger out of 8 billion people in the world. And that one's my son. And so you, you'll be able to tell the difference. Anyway, the other thing is you can put my name in on Amazon. On Amazon, there's all the books, there's music. So all you have to do, spell the name right. And you can find me anywhere. You can connect with me on Facebook. You can send me a message. The email, not surprisingly, is coachkellenflukiger at gmail.com. Not complicated. So if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that. Helen, thank you so very much for your time and your wisdom and sharing your story, being vulnerable. And I thank you for that. I want to honor you, Rashid. Uh, it takes courage to do a labor of love. It takes courage to invite people. It takes courage to make a decision to be the beacon of light, a vessel of love and a conduit of power that you're doing with your podcast to help people choose to embrace their inner weirdo, to love themselves, to stand up and to be who they need to be. And so thank you. And I want to be express deep gratitude for your work and your energy and your effort in this work. Thank you for listening to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where we debunk the myth that weirdo is a four-letter word. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Share it with a friend and leave a tip if you like the show.